Hey, this is Tim McCurdy, and welcome to Vinepair's Cocktail College, a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with America's best bartenders. If I had my way, every episode of Cocktail College would focus on the martini. Just kidding, of course, but regular listeners will be more than familiar with my love for this particular cocktail. So obviously, I was very excited when today's guest suggested we speak about the martini, even if it is the 50-50 variation, which I haven't historically been the biggest fan of. I'm also very excited about the guest, too, who literally needs no introduction. It's Dale DeGroff, an icon within the industry who, for decades, has played a vital role in the evolution and, I'd say, improvement of cocktail culture stateside and beyond. Dale's experience allows him to take the episode well beyond the 50-50 martini and talk about how the tools and ingredients available to bartenders have improved exponentially during his time. More importantly, the impact those things have had on the drink space and also the very philosophy of the martini itself. This is a philosophical question, listener. And a little bit of housekeeping here. On multiple occasions, Dale does refer to certain recipes that he sent me. And rest assured, those will publish online in the Vinepair transcript that accompanies this show. So if you want to check out those drinks, you know where to find them. Ask for one recipe, listener, and we shall give you multiple. Because that's what we do here on the Cocktail College podcast. I have some books nearby here too, so... Amazing. I will start with a little goofy intro here as we go into the podcast, and I'm going to say, listeners, you're more than familiar by now with the fact that I am from the British Isles. I am not, however, the, uh, I would say, the largest fan of the royal family or the idea of the royal family in general, but I will say this, we're in the presence of royalty today. King Cocktail himself <laughs> is Dale DeGroff. Dale, welcome. How are you? Nice to see you. Nice to be here, Tim. Uh, and by the way, we don't have royalty in this country. You know that. Not in this country anymore. <laughs> that was, <laughs> Not in this should, country. Should I tell you about King Cocktail and where it came from briefly? Yes, please. Uh, behind the bar at the Rainbow Room, and there was a woman from The Current Affair, which was a TV show that shot across the street from us, across 6th Avenue or Avenue of the Americas, as they call it. Um, she'd come up after the long day sometimes, and she was up there. And she said, oh, just give me the first thing on your menu. And I poured her a drink off the menu. She said, oh, that was good. I mean, just let's go down the menu. Give me the second thing on the menu. We got down to number five. She said, this is good, too. You know, you know something, Dale? <laughs> you are the king of cocktails. I said, that's it. That's it. This was right at the beginning of the dot-com era. So I thought, oh, my God, kingcocktail.com. <laughs> her, her name was Cynthia Fagan, and she was a, a, a good friend of my wife's and, and also an off-air and sometimes on-air uh, with the TV show Current Affair, which is long gone now. But There we go. That's the origin <laughs> story right there. It's wonderful. Um, we're going to speak about martinis today. Martini's a drink that I could talk about for forever. Essentially, it's a drink that I love. I do have a small confession because the topic of this show is particularly the 50-50 martini. 
And it is one that I've been on the record, both in, in written word and perhaps audio, as not being the biggest fan of before. But in preparation for this show, I realized that it's not a drink that I often or ever order. And I can't think where I've ever had a bad one per se. So I guess my first question off the bat is, how much does the 50-50 martini align with the soul of this cocktail? I, you know, gin martinis being dry, boozy, punchy, the 50 is a completely different beast. So how, how do you feel like that fits in there, Dale? Well, uh, I guess you really have to go back to 1888, don't we? And let me crack a book here uh, on page 165 of the uh, original 1888. There was an 1882 edition before it of Harry Johnson's famous New and Improved Bartender's Manual where he says, martini cocktail, use a large glass, fill the glass up with ice, two or three dashes of gum syrup, be careful and not using too much, two or three dashes of bitters, poker's genuine only, of course. Uh, I put the of course in there. One dash of curacao or absinthe, if required. Uh, one, a half a wine glass, that would have been one ounce of old Tom gin, a half a wine glass of vermouth. And there it was in black and white. Stir up well with a spoon, strain it to a fancy cocktail glass, put a cherry or medium-sized olive if required, and squeeze a piece of lemon peel on the top. Serve as in the illustration, plate number 13. So from that moment on in 1888, because he was one of the fathers of the profession along with Jerry Thomas, young bartenders were especially – you know, there was a real craft. It was a real master apprentice craft. And young bartenders were really not prepared to call something a martini that didn't follow Dr. Johnson's prescription. <laughs> even, even in the Hoffman Bartender's Guide in 1905, you see one of the greats, Charles H., is it? Charles H. Mahoney. Uh, now, Charles has a series of dry gin, dry vermouth, sometimes using Nicholson's gin, uh, sometimes using Noily Pratt vermouth. Uh, see if he mentions by name any other gins. I seem to have been a Nicholson fan, which was a, a, a London dry style gin. Uh, and, and, and there's one that's half gin, half vermouth. Uh, he calls for a slice of orange, who knows why. Uh, <laughs> but he calls it the JPC cocktail. And then there's another one called the, um, let's see here, the Mahoney cocktail. A half a jigger of Nicholson's, a half a jigger of French vermouth, a dash of orange bitters. He calls it the Mahoney cocktail. Mm -hmm. uh, the Nutting cocktail, two-thirds of Plymouth gin, a very dry gin, one-third of French vermouth, a very dry, a, dry, a drop of orange bitters. Stir well, serve. Still, won't call it a martini cocktail. What does he call a martini cocktail? Let's see if we can find it in here, the martini cocktail. Here it is. Two dashes of gum syrup, three dashes of bitters. Hello. Right back to a half a wine glass of Old Tom, a half a wine glass of vermouth, because he would not call anything a martini except the master's original recipe. Now, this went right up until Prohibition that they respected the recipe that he had. Now, there are a couple of outliers to that, but very few. Mm -hmm. 
pretty much everybody respected those original uh, specs. Uh, so I I hadn't really had a 50-50 either for a long time until Audrey Saunders opened Pegu Club. Then I went in and I had one. Uh, and this and would have been thought, roughly what time for the listeners here? Just 2003. A year 2003. Yeah. So, uh, well, I I was a beef dry kind of guy. And that meant eight to one somewhere around there with a twist and an olive nice. that had been my, that had been my comfortable order for many, many, many years. Uh, it, 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 it suddenly my universe was thrown into, uh, uh, absolute chaos because <laughs> here I am tasting this drink with the orange bitters in it and the half and half. And it was good gin. It was good for me. And then I came so fast forward. I mean, I would still have my, Beef theater, but I would also, depending on what kind of a bar I was in, craft or otherwise, I would I would try to figure out uh, which type of martini I would have. If I went to PJ Clark's, I had my classic martini. But if I went to a craft bar, I would order their fitty fitty. She called it <laughs> fitty fitty, uh, Audrey, not fifty fifty. And uh, I, I would see what clever thing they had done with it. Now, fast forward to my association with William Grant, in particular Hendrix Shin. Um, they invited me to their offices to taste a, a new addition to the line called Orbium, which was quite uh, different from the original Hendrix Gin, which I loved in cocktails but never used in my martini because I thought, oh, my God, it's, it's a little too vegetal. It's a little too floral yeah. for my martini style. Mm-hmm. And But then I tasted the Orbium, which had a really interesting bitter finish uh, because I found out it had gentian, it had quinine, it had a totally different sort of aromatic profile. It had lotus flower, not rose. Uh, uh, so it was a different animal, and it was a martini animal, in mm-hmm. my opinion. So I started up in the offices making drinks with it with Charlotte Foisy and Eric Anderson, and we were together for like an hour and a half to two hours longer, probably, if you consider the fact that we sat and drank for a while. Uh, <laughs> 13 different martinis. And this a would have been, what, 2018, 2019 when that was first released? Or, or was this prior to that? This would have been prior to uh, COVID, yes. Yep. And so I, I ended up making a show out of that event called The Evolution of the Martini, where I started with the 1888 and I worked my way through talking about how and why things changed with the martini including the little uh including the little uh diatribe i just gave you <laughs> but about, it's a, it's a wonderful Harry. go ahead it's a wonderful reminder there sorry just that you know everything that is old becomes new again we see this throughout <laughs> history right and specifically in cocktails i think maybe there is a tendency within the bartending community or engaged drinkers to feel like the 50 is a modern cocktail. So it's, it's very, very interesting to hear that that was the original has me questioning my whole own martini origin <laughs> stories, my very existence here. Um, As did mine, you know, I went through that same angst. I'm, I'm right there with you. You know, if I, I'm a seven, seven, eight to one kind of guy, and I know that's very dry. It doesn't mean that I don't like vermouth. It's just how, my martini, normally, I like it to hit. But one thing that you've mentioned there, so, so we're talking about a few different points in time, but if we, if we maybe begin this conversation now at, at Audrey's point, right, 2003 there, 19 years have passed since then, and the drinking landscape has changed a lot because of ingredients. 
And how crucial do you think that is to the story of the 50-50 martini, gin and vermouth and just the understanding of those categories as well now? But completely, completely in charge has completely changed uh, a lot of uh, the way we approach drink making. And it certainly did for me because in the original craft of the cocktail, I only branded things like chartreuse, Cointreau, things that I thought didn't have an easy replacement in the marketplace. Uh, and they were in my drink. Uh, Laird's, uh, you know what I'm saying, Strega. You know, there were certain iconic products that filled a little niche yeah. and you couldn't really find anything to compete with them. And so, yes, I, 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 but in my standard gin, vodka, scotch, tequila, whatever, I did not brand. Mm-hmm. I did not brand because there was a limited number in, in the going back all the way to prohibition. I mean, after prohibition, there were maybe 1,200 spirits first available right after prohibition quickly in this country. 1,200. Mm-hmm. Think about that number for a moment. When I say to you, there are more than 7,000 gins worldwide right now. It's incredible. So, oh, my God. You know, when we went from uh, Glenlivet, Glenfiddich, uh, Lafroig, and Bunahaben in the 1980s to this to walking into a whiskey bar today and seeing a back bar completely filled with malt scotches in the hundreds many of those malt scotches were put in blends back in 1980 and people realizing that they had they were they were, they were leaving money on the table they yeah. created their own brands and off they went you know so that's another example tequila when i opened the rainbow room in 1987 Primo, primo, Cuervo Gold, baby. I was a Cuervo Gold margarita with fresh lime juice and Cointreau. And then I went to a tasting one day, sometime around 1989, I guess. I thought it was Gaz Reagan who led the tasting. He says he didn't, but I'm still convinced it was him. <laughs> and it was some weirdo group of tequilas, and I'm tasting these things, and I'm thinking – wow, this is weird stuff. This is not tequila. What I was tasting for the first time was agave. (laughs) (laughs) You know, instead of sugar cane mixed with agave. And so I'm I'm like, you know, what what I found out was weird was actually what real tequila was supposed to taste like. And this is the way we've gone category by category as we've discovered what old Tom could be, what Geneva has been for 200 years and is now again in this country. Thank you, Philip Duff. Uh, his 100% malt is now the basis for one of the martinis in this little list I sent you. We'll get to that. Mm-hmm. How liqueurs, first of all, the French were the masters of liqueur, fruit liqueurs. And, and, and in this country, we kind of played the imitation game. You know, we wanted to put them in the bottle at $11 and or actually in the beginning at $5. So what did we do? We found the chemists got to work and they found out, oh, we can make mango taste like mango with this chemical. We can make this chemical. And so rather than using fruit the way the French did, we, we had our lines of cordials. And it's, it was interesting. You know, they were they, they all have Frenchy sounding names. And of course, the Frenchier sounding the name was, the worse they were. <laughs> <laughs> and probably the more you could charge as well. <laughs> no, actually, they tried, the, the whole idea was to keep it under ten dollars, you know, and 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 they they and of course they blanketed the market because everybody wanted their cordial lines under ten dollars, but nobody cared about quality then. They didn't call their cocktails; they said gin and tonic. Mm-hmm. 
scotch on the rocks, bourbon on the rocks. People very, very seldom called a cocktail back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, only into the 90s did you finally see people after things like Absolute Stoli, uh, some of that stuff. Uh, you know, There were a few people that called scotches early on because they got heavy uh, marketing in the advertising world, black and white, doers. Uh, but people would easily switch brands by falling prey to the next advertising campaign. <laughs> so, so I guess what I'm getting at is that in the new millennium, uh, there were so many uh, providers. And, and by the way, you know, you, you had this, uh, all, all the liquor companies um, amalgamating, you know, when, when Seagram's went down, that was the beginning of the end. They split up Seagram's, Diageo bought a whole bunch of it, Pernod Ricard bought a whole bunch of it. Uh, and, and, you know, more and more and more, uh, these brands came together under large corporate entities. Uh, so uh, these guys had the money to develop lots and lots of products, uh, especially in the premium, super premium, ultra premium, whatever, because that seemed to be what was popular. So actually, in one way, we're blessed to have an amazing array of extraordinary products almost in every category. Uh, it's a little tough on the little guy that these big companies really do are such power powers in the industry. But then we have the long tail market, which means a, a, a company like Eric Said's company, which is, has a book this thick, you know, of hundreds of products that he sells in very small quantities because he is mining the long tail market mm -hmm. and he's doing it extraordinarily well so we can get those products you know uh big we don't care whether the big companies won't carry them you know we know where we can go to get them uh, and, and in the final analysis i have branded every single drink in my new craft of the cocktail uh, because i wanted to fine tune Mm -hmm. the flavors that I wanted in that cocktail. Right. And if you look at these martini recipes that I sent you, you know, one of them is made with 100% malt uh, old duff. One of them is made with orbium. Uh, some of them are made with orbium because I was working for orbium at the time. Uh, but I, I'm talking really dry style, you know, something mm -hmm. in there. So here's one with Ransom Old Tom. Ransom was a really interesting old Tom. Old Timer never really had a description uh, of what it meant to be old Tom. It does not have to be sweet. Mm -hmm. It does not have to do this or do that because it was just a name. A name created by a company, uh, a rectifier. I mean, not a rectifier, a, a, a spirit producer in in England that used to produce spirit for rectification into gin. Uh, and these guys were power, power, powers in the market in the early days of gin. But they had some very, very exclusive customers that they made a special, really good base gin, uh, uh, base spirit, and, and then crafted a gin around that base spirit, so cleaner than the stuff they sold to the average customer, mm -hmm. right? And that, and this is research done by David Wondrich, and it's a marvelous article about old time. If you if you if you Google David Wondrich old time, you'll get this story. And they would send this gin to their exclusive customers who maybe owned a big company that that rectified uh, gin on a on a mass scale. But this was for this private sellers, you know. Okay. And they called it old time. So that's where old time came from. It really never meant anything but quality back then. Interesting. Yeah, and there was a little sugar content in it because it. It, it softened it. <laughs> and we had a sweet tooth back in those days, you know. And so I think, you know, that, that that's very important. Like you're saying, the second edition of your book, you're calling out specific brands. And it speaks to what you've been talking about there, which is that if we just focus on gin, the category has not only exploded in terms of the number of brands, 
but the styles that we're seeing, right? And, and, and you know, London Dry being the one that would have, I'm assuming your gin cocktails in your original, your first edition there, that's what you were thinking of. Now though, whether you want to call it New Western or whatever, like the categories just exploded, the idea of terroir producers trying to capture that. It's interesting, and I'm not just saying this because you've done some work with them though, but I think, to my mind, is Hendrix the one that kicks all of that off? Just in terms with, you know, back in the day with the the English garden and, and some new botanicals in there. Um, or I'm going to throw out a theory here. And it, it's interesting because... Gin in the UK is very different to gin here, just in terms of its popularity, the amount or, or the market that drinks it, right? But I think that two of the most important products, this is my theory, in the past 20 years in the gin market have been Hendrix and then Fever Tree, which isn't a gin, but that's from a British perspective. First of all, how do you, how do you feel about that idea of Hendrix and, 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 and what's your take on my terrible theory there? No, no, I, I actually believe that Hendrix really was a real was a pioneer. Uh, if you want to talk about who first started to uh, uh, crack the monopoly that vodka had in the last from 1970 until 1999, uh, it, it probably was was Bombay Sapphire because okay, yeah. uh, it was interesting that they said, you know, these are the 13 botanicals that are, and they'd show them on the, uh, on the label, but it was much less botanical driven than any other gin on the market. Yep. And it did, uh, the blue bottle, a whole bunch of things about the advertising really did end up bringing a couple of gin drinkers over to that category. So they had a small part to play, but in fact, it was really Hendrix, which totally stepped away from that uh, juniper, your grandfather's liquor closet smell that yep. you know young people had sort of been driven away from, uh, and 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 really uh, seemed as though it wasn't even really gin in the sense that it wasn't driven by juniper, mm -hmm. and it, it was delicious and it had amazing floral and lovely ar aromatics going for it, and it was such a good ingredient or a base in cocktails. Mm -hmm. and, and, and yes, indeed, I, I, I believe you're, you're correct. It was, it was a pioneer uh, moving us away from what was a pretty narrow market at the time. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I mentioned only, you know, the second part of that fever tree, just in terms of like bringing the gin and tonic back or, or making it a younger person's drink. That was my experience of it. And we've had, we've had Simon Ford on the show before talking about that specific cocktail. And the, so there's a deep dive there. If folks want to listen to that a little bit more, but yeah, this gin landscape right now, it's incredible. It's funny that we have that, that both Bombay and Hendrix are the gins that we mentioned there. And those are the ones that stray away from the very juniper forward profile, which is the thing that defines gin. If I can wrap this back to the 50-50, though, and a, and a modern iteration of that, or maybe that first one that Audrey served you, what was it about that cocktail that struck you? And what are you looking for when you have that drink? Because like you say, it's a, it's a choice. It's not your normal martini. You're making the decision to have a 50-50. So what are you looking for there? Well, first of all, uh, because... Uh, along with all the other improvements in the world of, of uh, spirits, uh, vermouth is no exception. We have really crossed over now to 
probably the most interesting time in the history of vermouth as a category. Uh, we've got so many vermouths on the market. Old companies like Martini and Rossi, they don't like to be called that anymore. They call themselves Martini now. Cinzano, Carpano. These guys are coming out with new bottlings now uh, and old bottlings. Uh, and they're promoting them uh, across the board, uh, the bigger ones. And then there's the smaller ones, the, the, the uh, 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 Spanish vermouths yep. that are coming on market. What's a couple that of one? California Via, is it? Booths. There's Via, yes. right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's 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 really really a lovely thing to see. And so, what does that what does that do? It brings uh, the other half of the equation. Yeah. <laughs> you know, suddenly it's pretty amazing. I mean, I'm even using block style rather than dry style, and I started doing that when Martini came out with Ambrato, Ambrato Reserva, uh, this especial. That is to me driven by such amazing spice notes uh, that I don't care if it's slightly sweeter. Yeah. I want it in a martini. And I I, uh, I actually, Punch asked me, Punch Magazine asked me, what is my favorite martini recipe? And at that time, I was drinking three to one, beef eater to umbrato, and I threw that out there, you know, and I put, I think I put a dash of bitters in it. And, uh, and they did a tasting of a whole bunch of different martini recipes thrown at them by a whole bunch of different mm -hmm. people. And that one won yeah. because of the umbrato. I, I'm totally convinced because of the umbrato. So what do we have? We have half and half. If the other half of the equation is really interesting, wow. You know, because we already have amazingly interesting gins out there. Yep. You know, if you turn that other half of that equation into a world of possibilities, which is what we have, yeah. <laughs> you know, now all of a sudden uh, the strong stirred category or the, the strong spirits of any kind uh, or the strong stirred category, uh, which is basically a, a mother sauce for us. Uh, of a strong spirit and a sometimes fortified wine additive, uh, then you have opened the doors to literally hundreds and hundreds of variations, haven't mm -hmm. you? You know, with all these new vermouths and new gins. Yeah. And that's another thing driving my interest in this 50 50. Uh, or, or if you want two to one, yeah. You know, if you don't want to go that far, go two to one. And we're, we're, we're going, we're going all the way today, Dale. We're going fifty. And then, <laughs> and then throw my bitters in. I made my bitters so I could dry out tiki drinks. I made an all spice bitters because the all spice liqueur I was using for flavor in cocktails was gone from the market. Ray and nephew Ooh. back in the nineties. Uh, so. I at the end of the '90s, I said, "Well, let me make a, a a dry or a real, you know, bitter version of allspice, so I can use it in my tiki drinks because they're always too sweet." And and I worked with Ted Bro over the period of it literally it took us two years of back and forth mailings because we were both busy. To, he was the chemist, I was the taster. Uh, I mean, I sent him my original recipe, which he completely changed because I was using the wrong kind of uh, anise. I was using, you know, I was pretty much getting what I could get on Bleecker Street at the botanical store, you know, and right. he knew where, you know, that Sicily was where you got your green nanas from, mm -hmm. you know, and so he knew how to do it. So we ended up with this wonderful mega bitter, so bitter I would tell bartenders not to taste it, but to smell it between their hands, you know. Uh, and I thought, okay, and then and then I'll, I'll put it in my rum punches and I'll put it in. But then I tried it one time in the Manhattan. And my sort of Swedish Manhattan suddenly was 
bone dry Manhattan, even though I use sweet vermouth in it. I thought, oh, that's wow. interesting. A couple of drops of this bitters can dry that Manhattan out like that. Then I started doing tastings of bitters in a Manhattan with a basic Manhattan, you know, the same as I did with the martinis, right? And I, I blew the minds of a lot of bartenders by realizing by changing the couple of drops of bitters in that drink, you can totally change that drink, you know. Uh, so I think bitters now has come into the into the at 50-50 martini in a very large way. Mm -hmm. Whose bitters do you want to use now? Originally, orange bitters was the call in the 19th century. Well, I'm using my own bitters in it, and I like it. You know, I like the spice punch that comes from my bitters. If I'm using the ambrato, I probably don't use my bitters because it's got a spice punch of it on. But if I'm doing 100% Geneva 50-50 with a sweet and dry vermouth, because by the way, Geneva is so malt-driven, that 100%, that it likes sweet vermouth almost more than it likes dry vermouth. And David Wonders taught us that. He said, what did they, what, the original uh, uh, Geneva, uh, which was the gin of the middle of the 19th century, by the way, just in terms of, 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 of what came through the Port of New York, which is research that David did, uh, most of it was Geneva. So what was, what was being drunk in those days uh, was a kind of whiskey-driven, a malt-driven gin, you know, uh, if you want to think of it as a, as a, uh, a white dog whiskey, you know, in a sense, it was mm -hmm. a very, very malty. And that kind of heavy whiskey kind of a style doesn't really like dry vermouth, but it likes sweet vermouth. Hey, and Manhattan, sense. you know. And so I started using a little bit of really good Torino sweet vermouth all along with my dry vermouth in my 100% malt 50-50. And that to me just exploded, you know, into such a wonderful, wonderful drink. And I made it for Philip Duff on my front porch. And it's in that recipe file I gave you. Let's go down to that file here. Yeah. So I, I will just note here as well that, you know, all of the episodes of, of Cocktail College that we publish, we also publish a transcript on the Vine Pair website. And if, if with your permission, Dale, I'd love to uh, publish those recipes on there so folks can refer to them after listening to the show. Absolutely. And you can take out the Orbium uh, for the dry gin styles and put in your favorite dry gin. Mm -hmm. uh, I use that because I was engaged by the company to tell this story. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to use their product in as many of these. They did not force me to use their product exclusively because you'll notice that in that list is Ransom's Old Time Gin. In that list is 100% Malt Geneva, mm -hmm. uh, Old Duff. So they were not heavy duty about it they wanted me to do the evolution properly the evolution the of the martini chins. yeah and so i did and uh and now that i'm making the uh 100 uh malt as a martini that was as a fancy gin cocktail in that list now that i'm making it as a martini i'm using three parts of torino of uh kochi uh uh torino, to torino. Uh, yeah vermouth uh and i'm using uh kochi I don't know how you pronounce it, Koki, I guess, mm -hmm. uh, uh, Torino-style red. And then I'm using – I was using um, the Carpano Blanc. Yes. Uh, but then I slipped over to a winier uh, dry, and I went to the uh, to the uh, Chambry style, mm -hmm. which is the uh, Dolan. Yeah. Which was a popular style at the end of the 19th century in this country. And just to, to – tie into some of the things we we're speaking about earlier there now that we're you know we're, we're talking about vermouth i think 
an interesting part of this conversation too is that we saw bartender founded gins you know simon ford i mentioned i believe wasn't the individual who founded aviation it it wasn't ryan reynolds but wasn't the original founder also a bartender ryan mcgarian he was a bartender right based out there in and was a bartender he came out of a really interesting food lab uh in seattle called uh kathy casey's kitchen uh, he was a, an apprentice at Cassie, Kathy Casey's, and so he learned a lot about flavor, a lot about botanicals, a lot about spices in that in that job. And then when he got behind the bar, he wanted to do a Northwestern gin yeah. using Northwestern botanicals and especially lavender, you know. Uh, and that's where that came from. And that uh, really think- ties that really ties into that profile we're, we're speaking about there, right? The new Western. Um, but then we see the next step in the story which is these days I'm starting to see bartender-driven vermouths, which makes a lot of sense and ties into this, for me, the concept of, um, you know, the 50-50 martini, that gaining in prominence again. You talking about the importance of vermouth there. I believe um, Chris Patino and Stacey Swenson have, have worked on a brand. I know there's others out there. I, I forget the names of them, so I'm sorry for that. But um, I think that's interesting too, right? Because if that's equal parts in the cocktail we're talking about today then the vermouth needs to be on point, as you talk about there. And it only makes yeah. sense that bartenders would have this. This is an ingredient they're using, so they would design it for their needs, just as totally. Simon Ford did with his gin. Well, uh, Ted Bro, my partner in the Bitters Company, and I are only about a half a year away from releasing a bitter aperitivo uh, and, a, and a an Amaro, and the next product, maybe a year later, will probably be a vermouth. Amazing. Heard it here yeah. first, folks. Yeah. Uh, excited <laughs> for that. <laughs> it'll be under, it'll be under, the, under the name de Groff, so the same as the bitters, you know. Uh, and I, I guess before we, before we move on here too, how much do you think this, this bartender's embracing sherry? as well has played in the modern fortunes of this cocktail because that's a wonderful ingredient you can use in a 50 50 um for, for for some of that you know maybe a nuttier kind of style of 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 a martini um do you think that is also helped the resurgence of the 50 50 yeah I, I i think you know the uh the drinks by the way uh fino sherry as a as a martini ingredient has a pretty long history uh, when I went to work at the Hotel Bel Air in 19, uh, what was it, 78, which was one of the great hotels in the world at the time, I, I actually didn't deserve to be behind the bar. I didn't have anywhere near enough skill to be there, but I lied my way into the gig. Mm-hmm. And I was, a, I was a quick study. But the owner of the hotel, who didn't live six months long, long after I got the gig, uh, his name was Joseph Drown, and he was a protege of Conrad Hilton's, and he had built the hotel during the Second World War, actually illegally, because he wasn't supposed to be using those uh, those materials for anything but the war effort. And uh, he opened in the in the late forties um, <laughs> in Bel Air in Stone Canyon, in a property uh, that had been Alfonso Bell's stables, and then the Catholic Church had bought it after that. Uh, uh, and then he ended up buying the stables and turning a lot of those same buildings into what became a very beautiful luxury hotel. Uh, Joe drank his martini uh, 
in a very specific way, which they taught to me day one because I was on the day shift and that's when Joe came in. There was a, a they had a, had a small see-through uh, ramekin. Ramekins are those ribbed sided kitchen that you put uh, uh, things like brulo and stuff in. Uh, 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 brulee and yeah. things like that or, or, or custards and so uh, in, in that was crushed ice and in that was about a four ounce cruet uh, and then a chilled martini glass and when you brought the drink with this in the, in the sh- still in the uh, mixing glass you would pour a little bit into his chilled glass and the rest of it into the into the carafe that was in the crushed ice on the side it wasn't made with uh, vermouth. It was made with fino sherry. Uh, and the glass was seasoned also with fino sherry. Uh, a bartender at another Hollywood uh, boat, if you will, called Chasen's, probably heard about that martini that was Joe Drown's favorite. Joe Drown, uh, that was an exclusive hotel with only 68 rooms, and you couldn't get a room there unless you had already stayed there. <laughs> figure that one out <laughs> you're a better man than i so uh actually what happened was uh the most uh, the luminary in the neighborhood was uh was uh howard hughes howard hughes when the hotel opened bought half of the rooms and 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 used them only as guest rooms for his friends and the other half were open to the rest of the public uh and it was it was that drink, I think, that was probably sexy because it was the Hotel Bel Air. And the Hotel Bel Air is where you went not to be seen. The, the Beverly Hills is where you went to be seen. And you couldn't get into the hotel rooms anyway. So, you know, it was a, it was a tough, tough call. So you had your captains of business and and, and the guys who owned the, the studios went to the Bel Air. And it was the actors and the writers who went to the Beverly Hills. So, so uh, Pepe Ruiz, who was the head bartender at Chasen's, uh, the lore has it that uh, Dean Martin walked in and said, "Pepe, uh, I've been here all these years," and because he had a he had the the, the uh, Rat Pack pretty regularly at his bar. So, so oh, Pepe, I I don't know why I don't have a my own drink, Pepe, after all these years. And he said, "Mr. Martin, the next time you walk through that door, I'm going to have something for you." And what did he do? He took a, a glass seasoned it with flamed orange peels. That's where I got the idea for the rainbow, by the way. Flamed orange peels all on the inside of the glass. Fino sherry seasoned glass, probably grabbing the idea from the Hotel Bel Air. And vodka shaken. No gin at all. Dean Martin apparently liked vodka. And he shook it up for him and Martin went nuts for it and so did the rest of the Rat Pack. Uh, so this idea of, of, of Fino sherry, now if you want to take wow. it to a step further to go to the nuttier style sherries, like a dry Amatheano, a dry Oloroso, yeah. sure. Now you're getting into the sweet vermouth category, maybe, you know, and that, you're seeing that happening less than with the Fino sherry, but yes, you're seeing that happening. So there's history for that too. <laughs> mm-hmm. Love to hear that Dean Martin, Dean Martin story though. I mean, what a character. Um, interesting. Live at the Sands is a favorite of mine. If anyone wants to go out there and listen to that album, I think it's on YouTube. Um, D. Martin, Live from the Bar. That's what they always said. Interesting <laughs> guy. So what? What that would have been what? Vodka, no vermouth. So we're, we're literally in that one only using what? The Fino Sherry rinse on the glass and that's totally. it? Totally. Totally, yeah. Nice. Peter Sherry and all that orange oil. All that orange, yeah, yeah. Which, again, you know, has a, has a real drastic effect on the cocktail. Well, the sherry and orange is not an uncommon, you know, mate in 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 dishes. Was, you know, was, there, the, was there a the name for this side. one, by the way? 
What's that? Was there a name for his drink, by the way? The, the Flame of Love. The Flame of Love. <laughs> I know what I'm making tonight. <laughs> <laughs> well, this this is, I mean, this has essentially been, uh, you know, as we've spoken about many times, the evolution of the martini here. We are going to put the 50-50 martini as the episode title here. So I'm going to have to ask you, Dale, we've spoken about all the different ingredients here. We're going to publish the other the other recipes that, that, that you've come armed with today. But can I ask you for your definitive or the definitive of the moment for you? 50-50 martini <laughs> recipe. And can you speak us through the preparation as if you were making it for us today on the show? I can, yeah. Uh, so it, it's uh, I've now graduated to the one I kind of began to describe to you already. Um, I am... Uh, okay with it, with Ransom's Old Tom, which is my favorite of all the Old Toms on the market. I started making it with that. I tasted it with Philip Dubb's uh, Old Duff, and I like it equally well with that. So you could take either one of those gins as your starting point for the 50%. Now, the other 50% is going to be divided into two parts. One part is the Vermouth de Torino that we discussed from Koki. That's good. I'm not one part, two parts. Uh, two parts of the half. Yep. And the and so the, the other half is divided in a two to one ratio between the Koki uh, Vermouth de Torino and your favorite dry. I started out using Carpano Blanc. I am now using Dolan Dry. But actually, any really really good dry vermouth is going to work, or, or any really really good Blanc. And the only two I consider to be really good: Ambrato. And Carpano Blanc are the two I consider to be head and shoulders above everybody else's Blanc. Use either one of those or use the dry. Wonderful. Uh, and I like those two because the spiciness overcomes the fact that they're a little bit sweeter. And besides, it's only one part against the two parts of the sweet for me. Mm -hmm. uh, and so would that be that, one and a half ounces of the gin component and then one and cool. a half? And then one and then a half, basically. Got it. Uh, uh, and so um, on my uh, on my uh, bitter side, I'm using a dash of Dale DeGroff's aromatic bitters. And I, I got to warn people that um, we, we've moved uh, production of my bitters from Samur uh, Combier Distillery to Sazerac Louisville Distillery in, in Louisville, Kentucky. And after a year and a half, we've been uh contacted by the TTB which now thinks that our our aromatic bitters is no longer a food additive but it's a beverage uh we're not happy about that and we're in court defending our position that we've been on the market for almost nine years now Jeez. as a food additive and why all of a sudden it, has it changed in their minds when we're using all the same ingredients so it's a really tough moment to be in but as a as a uh, as a disclaimer, we don't have much on the market right now. Whatever's out there is out there. And until we're back into production at Sazerac, which is totally up to the TTB, if ever, Jeez. if they decide they're not going to relent, then we're out of business. Uh, but I will tell you that the uh, but the uh, the Amaro that we're making in as partnership with Hood River Distillery, Ted Bro and I, will be based on the flavor profile of my bitters with much more added, of course, a whole fruit element and some other spice elements as well. So anyway, my bitters, <laughs> if you can get it, uh, dash, <laughs> at long, long uh, uh, disclaimer there, uh, well-stirred, uh, 
uh, and chilled and poured. I I honestly haven't really garnished it, but if you were going to use a garnish, uh, I I might go with an orange peel over a lemon peel. Mm-hmm. Um, but I like the drink just the way it is. It comes out kind of um, because of the the small amount of uh, vermouth de Torino, you're getting a sort of a copper, rosy copper look to the uh, to the drink. Not nice. that dark, uh, but a rosy amber maybe. It would be a better way to describe it. Uh, it's just a lovely drink with a, with great aromatics and, uh, and, and spectacular. Whether you do it with the malt or whether you do it with the Ransom Old Tom or your favorite Old Tom, uh, I highly recommend it. and preferred glassware for yourself um i'm using the uh the uh uh, nicanora which i believe um didn't robert simonson recently publish a story on that about yourself uh for buying pairs (laughs) there's a good story behind nicanora i'll give it to you quickly because i don't know how much time we have left uh but when we opened the rain room in 1987 uh, I went to Joe and I said I, I wanted he wanted dishes with tradition and cocktails with tradition and he did not want me to get creative he wanted classics that had been lost you know uh, I did get creative later down the road but at the beginning menu uh, I have it here uh, just to give you a, an idea of what I'm talking about our, one of our opening menus um, okay the Algonquin the Americano the Between the Sheets the Bronx the Coffee Cocktail the Colony the Flamingo the Floridora the Jack Rose the Manhattan Margarita Martini Moscow Mule Negroni Old Fashioned uh, Pink Lady Planters Punch Ramos Fizz Sazerac Sidecar Stork Club Southside south in 20th Century this is 1987 menu $4.50 for a drink at the Rainbow Room very nice uh, and I, I, I had to take this menu out of service six months in because I hadn't uh, really realized how labor intensive it was. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, it's a pretty good list of drinks right there. Because we were doing, you know, that first year, $27 million gross, and we didn't, I didn't get any friends and family to warm up to the menu. Although we had, we had like a good two months of, of practice moving into it. Mm-hmm. I really had to create some systems to make the menu work and, and shorten the menu a bit. <laughs> but you can see these are original classics. Yep. And that's what Joe wanted. And so I went to Joe and I said, Joe, I, I, I want a glass, you know, for the drink. Not all of them. I mean, I'm going to use the V for the martini, the Manhattan and all those. I said, but I got the 20th century and I've got these, you know, unusual the store club, Flamingo, Colony. I think we need a glass with tradition. I'd like to go searching around. He says, go over to Minner's Designs, he says. It's on the east side. And I looked it up, Minner's Designs. Um, sadly it's not there anymore. Uh, and I went in cold and said, you know, we're involved in the restoration of the rain room. I talk about Rockefeller center, uh, looking for a glass with tradition stem. I said, do you remember the thin man movies with William Powell and Myrna Loy? I want that glass. It wasn't a V on a stem. It was a little bowl, much smaller than the big martinis they're using now. And I'm looking for that glass. And they said, well, it sounds familiar. You'd have to go to the old and rare catalog. And they gave me a copy of it, a Xerox copy of it. 
And they said, but as a, as a disclaimer, we have to tell you, if you choose anything from this catalog, there are no molds left for this catalog. This is all early 20th century stuff. So you're going to have to build the molds and it ain't going to be cheap. So I hope you're going to make a lot of classes. Jeez. And I said, it's the rainbow room. Don't worry. We're going to make a lot of classes. <laughs> so I, uh, I found this thing called the Little Martini. And I said, this is it. This is the Nick and Nora glass I was telling you about. This is the glass I want. Make the molds, you know. So over the years, as I would order it, I, I just wrote Nick and Nora because my sales guy knew what I meant, you know, Yeah. Instead of, instead of Little Martini. And fast forward up to we lost our lease at the Rainbow Room in 1999. I opened a little place called Blackbird. I brought I brought Audrey in to work with me for the first time side by side with me. I couldn't use her at the Rainbow Room because it was a local six union, very strong union place. I had been using her for pro bono stuff, but I, I wanted to work with her, and I brought her into this little uh, little uh, Blackbird, which had been Aurora, the first fine dining restaurant where I worked for Joe Baum. And I brought the Nick and Nora into that, into that establishment also. She fell in love with it. And when she opened Pegu Club, like three, two years, three years later, she went to Minners and said, I want this glass, you know, the Nick and Nora glass. And that's really where the craft movement found out about it at her bar, you know, the Nick and Nora, because she was calling <laughs> it the Nick and Nora. And then Steelite buys the old catalog from Minners, and they don't call it the Little Martini. They call it for the first time in print the Nick and Nora. The Nick and Nora. <laughs> Jeez. Which made me very happy. <laughs> <laughs> Dale DeGroff, you got your bitters. You got your Nick and Nora glass. You got your vermouth coming down the line. The Amaro. I mean, I don't know. Just, just Nick and Nora glass. Everybody makes that now. Everybody from Minners to to Libby. You know, you can buy a Nick and Nora glass anywhere in the market now. You didn't. You didn't want to. You didn't want to go in there on on royalties there at some point in the beginning. No, Would have been a good idea. I wasn't. A, I wasn't a mogul type, and I didn't think of those kinds of avenues. Unfortunately, <laughs> <laughs> I had enough stuff to worry about. Actually, you know. Just, just uh, managing what I was managing. So. Yeah, but what I mean to say by that is, what a what a storied career it's been thus far. And any final thoughts we should mention on the fifty fifty before we leap before we leap into the second part of this show, the final part of the show here, where we're going to get to know you a little bit more as a drinker and as a bartender with our recurring questions. Well, I'm going to show you something, and I know that the people can't see it, but I'm going to show it to you. This is going to be the bottle design for my new products. That's and it's wonderful. Uh, it's uh, it's made by Bormioli, the glass company in Italy. Nice. It's round, it's round at the top and square at the bottom. I, I, am I allowed to describe some of this here for the listeners? No, it's not ready for this. Okay. <laughs> All right, folks. Well, I'll just tell you now, this is a very attractive bottle that's coming down the line. You, you heard it here. And I'm excited it to taste be, it. It'll be the first quarter of 2023. We're, we're counting on that as a release date. Very if all nice. goes well. Well, how about it? Let's, let's kick off these final, these final questions, Dale, to, uh, to end this wonderful chat today. All right. Let me see if I can find what I said. I did say some stuff here. Okay, shoot. <laughs> Question number one, as is customary, what style or category of drink typically enjoys the most real estate on your back bar? 
Well, I don't have a back bar anymore. I have a back bar in my home. But right now, digestivos, divos, aperitivos, for obvious reasons, uh, uh, gins and agave spirits, uh, probably I have more of than anything, followed by brandies, followed by American whiskeys. Mm-hmm. Nice little collection there. So, so yeah, definitely uh, a well-stocked bar, as, I, as I'm sure most folks would hope and imagine for yourself there. Question number two. Which ingredient or tool do you believe is the most undervalued in a bartender's arsenal? Uh, well, uh, I've always used a Boston shaker that was uh, a 16-ounce glass uh, covered by a 22-ounce stainless steel uh, top. Uh, the craft movement, pretty much starting with Sasha Petrosky, went metal on metal. Sasha did it because he thought it made a colder drink and he kept everything chilled. And he was using pint glasses to begin with and he kept them frozen and he went through them so fast he couldn't get them cold enough fast enough. So he said, well, let me just use metal for both parts. And hmm. that has become the two-handed shake where you snap the bottles, the, the bottoms of the metal against each other. And it's really become signature. That's great um, if you are a person who jiggers everything. If you're not, the beauty of the 16-ounce pint glass was the only way that we could keep consistency in our sours and other drinks was is we could see right before the ice went in, the line with each in, 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 in added ingredient. Let me give you an example with a sour. We would put in a, a three-quarter ounce pour of the sour ingredient in the bottom of that glass. You needed to learn what that looked like as a bartender at the Rainbow Room. And these are the things we practiced uh, then you needed to double the amount of that liquid with the uh, sweet ingredient. Then you need to double the amount of the ex that existing, the, the sweet and the sour, with the strong ingredient. And that would give you a perfect sour. Uh, so without, and we did not jigger. You know why we didn't jigger back in 1987 in New York City at the Rainbow Room? Because nobody in Midtown Manhattan in a fancy cocktail lounge ever picked up a jigger. Why? Because the only people who picked up jiggers were the neighborhood bars. Huh. And the jiggers were three-quarter ounces because the bottom was so thick. You thought you were getting an ounce and a half. You were getting three-quarters of an ounce with a big, thick <laughs> bottom. And everybody could, everybody uh, uh, immediately perceived jiggering as chintzy, cheap. Go, go, don't go to that bar. Interesting. So in Midtown, we had a bucket glass. And if you were going to pour a customer a scotch on the rocks, you better be pouring two to two and a half ounces or they weren't coming to your bar. Free pour. Right. On top of, on top of cold draft ice cubes, which were the old ones that were still around when I started tending bar in 1974. But uh, that is a lost thing. And now if you want to be a free pour bar – if you're not into heavy jiggering, in other words, if you're not making all the very, very fancy, fancy drinks that require very precise jiggering, you need to learn how to use the glass and metal, uh, a Boston shaker. Boston. That, that, that's just wonderful. Neither hot here nor there. I mean, I'm talking like the old guy now, you know. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> no, but again, I'm the old guy. <laughs> it's 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 so funny to get that perspective that. Jiggering was seen as, you know, lower than free pouring then. You know, I, we mentioned at the start, everything that's old becomes new again, but also, you know, everything always flips too, right? There's always the, <laughs> there's the, the, the action and the reaction. It's, it's, it's fun to look back on. Also for ingredient, I think we can just add here as well, Dale DeGroff's bitters for the undervalued 
and uh, definitely stock up on those while we still can. Indeed. Question number uh, three. What's the most important piece of advice you've received while working in this industry? Um, that don't, don't underestimate um, your ability to change the world one customer at a time. That was Gaz Reagan. Interesting. That's, I mean, for people like yourself that have seen this cocktail movement evolve in real time, looking back, that must have been what the task was, person by person. Well, the task was, for me, working for Joe Baum, um, very easy because Joe told me what I was expected to do. I was expected to make friends out of difficult people. And I was also uh, expected to tell the stories because mm -hmm. I knew the stories. And that's, a, that's another show. <laughs> <laughs> we'll definitely have to have you on for, for a part two someday to hear that. <laughs> Wise words, though. I enjoy that. Question number four. If you could only visit one last bar in your life, can be past or present, this is a hypothetical question here, which one would it be? You know, I, I, I can't say that it's a bar. There are too many lovely bars around the world. Yeah. But what I would say is that I'm a person that really goes to bartenders more than I go to bars. So I would go to a bar where Doug Quinn is behind it. To me... He's one of the best bartenders working today in mm -hmm. any country, in any city. Uh, he had Hudson and Malone in Manhattan. Before that, he was at PJ Clark's, and now he's got Hudson Malone in Stanford, mm -hmm. in um, Westport, Connecticut. So, I mean, he's not the only bartender that I would choose, but he's one of he's the, one. One of the top ten. Mm -hmm. And so, for me, it wouldn't be about the bar; it would be about the bartender. That's Why funny. do you go to a bar? I mean, the bar is only as interesting as the people that are in it. And the people that are behind it. That, are making... that reminds me of something. I've got to ask you this, and I forget who told me about this, but was there not in the early dot com era, was there not a website that tracked where bartenders were working in New York at the time so that people could follow them and go and visit them wherever they happened to be working on on that given night? Is that well, Does that bring it was a bell? Fortune magazine. <laughs> <laughs> there was a writer named Bill Flanagan who used to periodically, once a year, talk about all the best bartenders in Manhattan. So that was the that was the uh, analog version. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe there may have been a website. I'm like sure that. there was. And, and if, who knows? Maybe Bill started it because he was still alive then. Good idea. I mean, I, I you know maybe some valid safety concerns i'm not sure but i'm sure folks would appreciate that these days and if anyone listening does remember that please reach out and let us know because i think that's an interesting tale final question here for you dale de groff if you knew that the next cocktail you drank was going to be your last what would you make or order uh well right at the top of the list would be the one that we described today my favorite have 50-50 martini, followed by the Negroni, I guess. Uh, equally interesting because mm -hmm. of all the ingredients for a lot of the same reasons. Mm -hmm. Question for you. Is it, what bonus question. <laughs> uh, 
when you think of the Negroni, I'm not saying change the ingredients, but do you think of it as a gin cocktail? It's often in the gin cocktail section of books and whatnot. But is it a gin cocktail in your mind, philosophically? Uh, no, not really, because the, the father of the Negroni is the Americano. So it was really a, uh, you know, bitter aperitivo so, yeah. uh, style long drink mm-hmm. to begin with. And it's only uh, Count Camillo mm-hmm. Negroni who turned it into a gin cocktail. <laughs> Very nice. Well, thanks again. Like I said at the top of the show, in the presence of cocktail royalty here today, the the, the true royalty that matters. No disrespect to the Windsors. Uh, Dale, thanks for joining us. Um, Look forward to having you back again someday. Big fun, Tim. Thank you. Thank you very much. Ciao. Okay, that was a lot of info, but here's the good news. Every single episode of Vinepair's Cocktail College is also published on vinepair.com as a transcript, so you can check it out there all over again. Also, if you enjoy listening to the show anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it, go ahead and hit subscribe, and please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher, and please tell your friends. Now for the credits. Cocktail College is recorded and produced in New York City by myself and Keith Beavers, Vinepair's tastings director and all-round podcast guru. Of course, I want to give a huge shout out to everyone on the Vinepair team. Too many awesome people to mention. They know who they are. But I want to give some credit here to Danielle Grinberg, art director at Vinepair, for designing the awesome show logo. And listen to that music. That's a Darby Seaside original. Finally, thank you, listener, for making it this far and for giving this whole thing a purpose. Until next time.